Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like Him. And now we're going to turn to the scripture this morning. Uh, We are in the last week in this series on generosity. So if you haven't been with us very long, um, and I'm about to preach on money, just know this is not the norm for the church, all right? I'm not always like pressing people for money. We're not talking about money all the time. Um, But this is the last week in a series on generosity and what Jesus has called us to. So we're in the book of Luke today, uh, chapter 16. Starting next week, uh, we'll be entering a series on Sabbath, how we Sabbath. What does Sabbath mean? What is rest for the people of God? Um, So that's where we are. That's where we're headed. Uh, And so I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 16. We're going to read verses 1 to 14. They'll be on the screen. You can find them in the Pew Bible. And Terry is going to come and read the scripture now. Now he said to the disciples, there was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and asked, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to himself, what will I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So what? So that when I am removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned each of the master's debtors. How much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil, he said. Take your invoice, he told him. Sit down quickly and write 50. Next he asked another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Take your invoice, he told him, and write 80. The master praised the unrighteous man, manager, because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of worldly wealth, so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with worldly possessions, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all of these things and scoffing at him. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Terry. So we're going to start today in, in kind of a weird place, actually, for this parable. Um, because if you didn't notice, this parable is odd. And it's kind of hard to understand. It's probably the hardest parable that Jesus told to understand exactly what's going on and exactly what he's telling. Um, partly because we live so far removed from the world in which Jesus told it. And so I think what would be helpful for us is actually to go back <clears throat> to Psalm 1, the very first psalm in the Bible. <clears throat> so I'm going to read Psalm 1 for you. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked, or stand in the pathway with sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. He's like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. 
the wicked are not like this. <clears throat> Instead, they're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. That's Psalm 1. Psalm 1 summarizes for us a theme that goes throughout the Bible and throughout the teaching of all the great rabbis of history, which is that there are two ways of life. There's God's way and the world's way. That's it. Throughout the Bible, you find this theme. In the teaching of Jesus, you find this same theme. You can live God's way or you can live the way of the world. And that's it. And in this parable, I think Jesus is laying out for us two ways for us to handle our resources. We see the world's way and we see God's way. Jesus makes that pretty clear when he's talking about the children of light and the children of this age. He's playing on that theme of the two ways of living. Now, this whole two ways theme didn't just end at the New Testament. Right? The early Christians, they picked it right up. In fact, there's one document from the early church called the Didache. Anybody ever read the Didache for fun? A little bit of light reading on your Saturday? No? Yeah? Jonathan has. I, I'm not surprised. Um, the Didache is uh, the teaching of the Twelve. It's supposed to be a document that shares the, the way of life that the Twelve Apostles, the Twelve Apostles of Jesus, shared with their followers. It's supposed to preserve for us the earliest tradition of how Christians should live. And the Didache begins by saying there are two ways of life. There's the way of the world and there's the way of Christ. And here's what the way of Christ looks like. Here's what the way of Jesus looks like. And then it lays out for followers of Jesus how they ought to live. Now, it's kind of a shame that most Christians don't know about the Didache because it was an incredibly important document for the first few hundred years of the church's life. But it preserves for us that same theme, that same theme that goes throughout the Bible and was a theme in the teaching of all the great rabbis of Judaism, which is there are two ways of life. And so here in this parable, we get that from Jesus. The bulk of the parable is about the way of the world, the way of unrighteous wealth, with this dishonest steward or manager, depending on how your Bible translates it. So here's how this goes. You got a guy who's working for another guy. You got this, this untruthful manager who's managing the finances for someone much wealthier than him. This owner of goods, this owner of businesses or of, of resources, has this household steward who will manage his finances for him, and he finds out that the guy's been lying in the account books. Clearly, he's been stealing from the manager, from the owner. And the owner, he's like, this isn't going to fly. Um, and so he realizes he has to dismiss this manager. He has to dismiss this steward. But he, well, first, he wants to sit down and take an account of the books, and so they've got an appointment on the day. The manager is going to meet with the master, the owner, and he's got to give an accounting of the books. But before that, the steward is like, what am I going to do? Clearly, he's not been saving for himself because it doesn't seem like he has any kind of nest egg to hold him over once he loses his job. But he knows his job is gone. He knows he's been caught. He knows he's not going to work anymore for this guy. And he doesn't have any alternatives. He's a proud man, so he can't beg. And he's, he's a weak man, 
Clearly, working with money and doing the books has not built up his physical prowess. And so he doesn't feel like he can dig. Maybe he just doesn't want to. That's probably his pride as well, right? And so he says, you know what? I'm going to go make some friends with these people that I've been working with. And so he goes to some of the owner's debtors. These are probably people who worked the fields that the owner owned. They worked the olive uh, grove. They worked the, the fields of wheat. And so they would, they would grow things. They would get to keep a portion of what they grew. And they had to give the manager or the owner a portion of what they grew as a kind of lease on the land. And so the owner had a, a claim on a certain portion of whatever these people grew. And the manager goes to these guys and says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. You owe 100 measures of olive oil. I want you to write down 50 instead. Take your ledger, write it down. And then when we go to the owner, you won't owe as much. And then he goes to the wheat farmer and he says, hey, you owe 100 measures of wheat. I want you to write down 80 instead. Now, in the time and place, the values of these things were such that he's making about the same discount for both of them, right? So even though the olive grower only owes half the olive oil and even though the wheat grower only owes 80% of what he had, the value is about the same in the time and place. So he's giving them the same discount. This way, the manager will make friends who will support him and help him and maybe even hire him to manage some of their resources. So that's what's going on here. That's the background that you got to know as we're listening to this. The tricky question about this parable is, who's the good guy? Because it seems like in Jesus' parable, there's always like a good guy. and There's somebody you're supposed to like be an example, and there's somebody who's not. And in this one, there doesn't seem to be any good guy. There doesn't seem to be any example. Like, are you supposed to follow the example of the unrighteous, unfaithful, untruthful manager? That doesn't seem like Jesus to me, right? You're supposed to follow the example of the owner, the master? We don't really know anything about him. We didn't get any details about him. So what's, what's Jesus getting at here? Why is he telling this story? And it puzzles people. It puzzled me when I first read it. Um, but I think Jesus makes it clear in verse 9, verses 8 and 9. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of worldly wealth, so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. That's the point of the parable. So, congratulations, we can go home now. You should be confused at this point. I was confused at this point. You get to this point and Jesus offers this explanation that like hardly means anything to us. The point is here that this unrighteous manager, this unfaithful, untruthful manager knows how to use the tools in his toolbox. That he knows how to use the resources put into his hands for self-gain. He knows how to set himself up. He knows how to approach money as a tool for himself. And what he's saying is, what Jesus is saying is here, this unrighteous manager, he's shrewd with how he uses his resources. He's, he's wise in a worldly way. He's wise about how he uses his things. And that's why he says, the children of this age, that represented by this manager, are 
shrewd in how they use their resources. They're wise in how they use their resources. They know how to get what they want out of the tools given to their hands. The problem here is that not only is this manager dishonest, but he's also operating with a scarcity mindset. He's operating as though what's available to him is is limited. And so he gets scared And he has to go and dishonestly use money in order to to build himself up. And that's a very worldly mindset. It's a very worldly way of looking at things. That There's only a limited number of resources and I need to get my hands on as much of it as I can in order to be set up in life. There's only so much out there in the world... And I need to go and claim as much as I can to be set up in life. That's the problem with the worldly view of wealth. That's the problem with the dishonest manager. And honestly, that's the problem with many of the people in our churches. How many times do you and I operate this way? How often do you and I operate in exactly the same way? Everything's a zero-sum game. There's only so much out there to be got, and I need to get as much of it as I can. And so I need to operate selfishly. I need to operate with my own good in mind and not others. Now, we'll dress it, in the church, we'll dress it up. We'll say, I need wealth to make sure my kids are taken care of. Or the more that I get, the more that I earn, the more I can give away. But do we really do that? The more that I earn, the more people will respect me and the more respectable Jesus will look. We dress up our self-interest in all kinds of ways that makes it look less self-interested, but let's be real. We're operating with the same mindset as the rest of the world. And that's what Jesus is warning against here. Operating as though there are only so many resources to go around and I need to get all of mine. And I need to make sure I'm set up. And I need to make sure that my kids are set up. Jesus is offering us a very different way of looking at wealth and resources. Not necessarily right here. But you see... The reason we've been in the Gospel of Luke for this whole generosity series is because Luke records a lot of what Jesus has to say about money and how we use it. A lot of what Jesus has to say about resources and how we use it. And as we've seen, the theme in Luke from Jesus to his followers is, if you're going to follow me, everything's got to be at my disposal. Everything. You can withhold nothing from me, Jesus says. He makes it clear, even back in Luke chapter 14, 33, when Jesus says... If you don't renounce everything to follow me, you are not worthy to be my disciple. Now sit with that for a minute. Let's chew on that. Let's take the hyperbole out of it for just a minute and assume Jesus isn't actually exaggerating. That he really means if you haven't renounced everything as your own and given it to me, you can't really be my disciple. Now that was a literal call for the people following him in the time and place. A very literal, physical call to his earliest disciples who would follow him and live with him and pitch tents with him as they learned to be like him. And for you and me, it's a little less literal 
But it's no less hard. Because for you and me, who aren't going to physically go camping with Jesus every day and walk with him as he goes from town to town teaching, for you and me, the meaning is everything gets laid at his feet. The meaning is that Jesus has a claim on absolutely everything we would call our own and gets to direct how we use those resources. And so what Jesus is laying out for us in the Gospel of Luke is something radically different from this worldly mindset. In fact, the, the clearest teaching, I think, is back in Luke chapter 12. I'm going to read you a, a passage from Luke 12, 13 to 34. And listen carefully to what Jesus has to say here. Someone from the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. <laughs> you can, you can kind of, as Jesus is listening to this question, you can kind of see him shaking his head a little bit. Like, hmm, buddy. And he answers, friend, he said to him, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? He then told them, watch out and be on guard against all greed, because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Then he told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life is demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, in these next verses, Jesus is going to clarify what it means for us to be rich toward God. He doesn't leave us hanging, wondering, Jesus, what do you mean by rich toward God? Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, or about the body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They don't have a storeroom or a barn, yet God feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than the birds? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? If then you're not able to do even a little thing, why worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes, clothes the grass, which is in the field today and is thrown into the furnace tomorrow, how much more will he do for you, you of little faith? Don't strive for what you should eat and what you should drink, and don't be anxious. For the Gentile world eagerly seeks all these things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be provided for you. Don't be afraid, little flock. Because your father delights to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old. An inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is Jesus' other way. This is Jesus' counter to the parable of the dishonest manager. 
This is Jesus' vision for his followers and how they approach their possessions, their resources. The dishonest manager says, there's only a limited number of resources in the world. I need to claim all that I can, even if it means defrauding my master. The follower of Jesus says, my God owns all things. My father is good and perfect and will provide for me in all situations. This is why the apostle Paul could say in Philippians 4.13, that verse that gets so mangled and disused, He'll say in Philippians 4, I've learned to be content in all things, in wealth and in poverty and freedom and incarceration. Therefore, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. There, Paul is talking about his material circumstances. I can be content in any material circumstance, not because of what's in my hand, but because of whose hand I'm in. I can be content in every one of my circumstances, no matter what, because my God is my provider. He clothes the flowers of the field and he makes sure the ravens of the air have food. Who am I to worry about me? You see, the follower of Jesus doesn't get to operate with a scarcity mindset as though there's only some limited number of resources in the world, as though our God doesn't actually have access to absolutely everything on earth. As though our God is not a good father who will actually provide for us. I think so many of us withhold from Jesus. We withhold from God because we are afraid. Because in our insecurity, we wonder, will I make it? Will my God really provide for me? Will he really make ends meet for me? Will he really? Is my God really that good? Are the people of my church really that good that when I am in need, they will step up? Does my family really love me enough that they'll step into my lack and bring their generosity? That's what we talked about last week when Jesus says, no one who's given up home Family for me will not gain it back in this life and eternal life to come. When we give everything to follow Jesus, we gain him and we gain one another. And we gain all the resources at our God's command. He will provide. Now, this is not a promise that God will make you rich in response to your faith. This is not a promise that you will live large because you have faith in Jesus. That is a lie. This is a promise that our good Father in heaven will make sure that we have what we need to serve him and to represent Jesus. And that his very provision will be a means of sharing the good news of Jesus. The very provision we've received from God's hands, those moments when we testify that what I needed was there even though I couldn't see how it got to me. Those moments when we testify that my God came through even in my lack. And this truth, this truth from the mouth of Jesus that our God will provide for us gives us a great freedom to live in radical generosity. Radical generosity. 
to give of ourselves, to cut into our standard of living for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom, to have things that we cannot do, that we cannot afford because of our giving, not because of a lack of income. To have things that we choose not to do because I would rather give to a brother or sister in need than buy that thing that I want. This is a freedom to live in radical generosity because our God will provide. We always have enough because our God has enough. We always have enough because our God is a giving God. And we are called to mirror him in the way that we give in the world, in the way that we share with one another, in the way that we meet the needs of other people through our church, through the organizations that we support, through missionaries that we fund, through buying a meal for that person who needs it, in small and big ways. We testify to the goodness of God and the truth of the good news of Jesus when we live lives of radical generosity, just as Jesus has given his all for us. Now, to be, to be frank, I don't know what radical generosity looks like for you. I don't know. I can't prescribe for you a percentage that you should set aside. I can't prescribe for you Exactly how you need to manage your money and how you need to manage your resources. I can't tell you exactly what you need to do. What I can tell you is that regardless of how much money you have, regardless of how much stuff you have, regardless of how many resources are in your hand, the call of Jesus is for you to begin to be radically generous right now in whatever circumstance you find yourself. Because here's the fact. You won't do when you're wealthy what you didn't do when you were poor. You won't do when you have lots of resources what you wouldn't do with little resources. This is what Jesus says here. If you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you've not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. Oftentimes, uh, when a couple is considering having a first baby, they'll wonder, are we ready? Do the numbers make sense? Does our house situation make sense? Are we living in the right place? Is our life prepared for this child? And you know what happens? You have the baby. And you learn you were not prepared. <laughs> it did not matter how much preparation you did or how many books you read or how much you baby-proofed your house. You weren't ready. Becoming a parent is the most glorious, painful thing I've ever experienced. Almost in the same measure. 
I learned very quickly I was not ready to be a dad. And every single time I get impatient with my kids, I'm reminded, I don't know if I'm ready to be a dad, but hey, we're here. I got to do my best. You're never going to be ready to start giving. You're never going to be ready to start being radically generous. You're always going to look at the ledger. You're always going to look at the budget and say, there's just not room. It just doesn't work. But just like stepping, just like having a baby and stepping into parenthood and finding out you weren't ready, we take that step of faith and we lay our resources in God's hands and say, here it is, Lord. It's not much, but do with it what you will. I don't have a lot to lay at your feet, Jesus, but whatever I have, I know you can do immeasurably more than what I've laid before you with it. And so if you only have time, the Lord will redeem it and use it. If you only have an ear to give to someone who needs to talk, that is of immeasurable value in the hands of our eternal and good Father. If you only have a prayer to give, you are praying to the one who can do inexpressibly more than you could ever ask or imagine. If you only have $5 a month to give to some, some cause for Jesus, God can multiply that beyond your wildest imagination. When we put our resources into the hands of our God, it doesn't matter how much or how little. What matters is the God in whose hands those things reside. And so the call for us today is to rid ourselves of that worldly mindset, rid ourselves of that scarcity mentality that there's only so much to go around and I need for me first before anyone else. And instead to step into the life of Jesus that says your Father in heaven loves you and will provide for you and has made a way for you to be radically generous and will multiply whatever meager thing you can bring to him because he is the one in control and he is the one with access to all of the resources of all of the world. He will do far more than you ask or imagine. If only we will faithfully step into that place and make the commitment to be radically generous, to give, to give to our church, to give to our community, to give to our brothers and sisters in need, to give to those who are sharing the gospel around the world, locally and across oceans, to give to those who are feeding the hungry, to give to those who are doing the work that we can't give. To step in and volunteer and serve those who are in need. To offer our time and our prayers and our ears. To truly give our entire lives to the good news of Jesus. Because he gave it all for us. There is no greater promise of the provision of our good God than the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are so many things we can provide for ourselves. There are so many things we can gain by the work of our hand. But the love of our Father, the adoption of God, is one thing we could never earn. And if God loved us so much to come to us when we were his enemies and lay down his life for us to secure us eternal life, then how much more will he make sure there's bread on our plates? And there's what we need. Jesus 
is our greatest guarantee that our God is on our side and will provide for us so that we can walk in the radical generosity of our King Jesus. God, thank you. Thank you for revealing to us these two ways. Thank you for not sugarcoating Jesus, for being honest with us, for being real with us, for telling us clearly what it costs to follow you. And I pray, Lord, that each one of us here would count the cost and see that it is no, it, it is no lack to me to give up what I cannot hold on to, to earn what I could not gain. That, Jesus, you have provided all for us. And that because you have provided everything for us, we can lay everything down before you. Help us to trust in your provision. To know that we have been adopted by a father who owns all things and who works all things to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Holy Spirit, today root us in the truth. Root us deeply in the truth that our God is a gracious, generous, giving Father who will make sure our needs are provided for so that we can walk in radical generosity. And Lord, where we have not made a plan to give, where we have stepped back from giving, where we have chosen to withhold our resources from you because we're afraid there's not enough or because we're insecure in what we have, would you, Lord, move us Move us forward. Help us, Holy Spirit, to make a plan and to begin walking in that plan, however meager we feel like it is at first. And would you walk with us into ever-increasing streams of generosity. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.